welcome back to our class. John Chrysostom, Marriage and Family Life. Let's begin with an invocation in the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off on page 83. Um, <clears throat> and to summarize Chrysostom up to this point, he's saying in terms of the what would translate for us the wedding and the wedding reception, by the, by the style that you've chosen, are you inviting Christ and the angels or are you inviting Satan and his demons? That's been his rhetorical push here. So on page 83, the first full paragraph, Chrysostom writes, When you invoke demons by your songs, when you fulfill their desires by your shameful speeches, when you bring mimes and effeminate actors and the whole theater into your house, when you fill your house with harlots and arrange for the whole chorus of demons to make merry there, what good can you expect? Tell me. Why do you even invite the clergy if you are planning to celebrate these rites on the next day? Do you wish to demonstrate a beneficial munificence? Invite the choirs of the poor. Are you ashamed at this idea? Do you blush? What could be more unreasonable than this? When you drag the devil into your house, you do not think that you are doing anything shameful. But when you plan to bring Christ in, you blush? Just as Christ is present when the poor enter, so when effeminates and mimes dance there, the devil is carousing in their midst. From this extravagance there is no benefit, but rather great harm. From the other expenditure you might quickly receive a great reward. So here Chrysostom on one of the major themes of his ministry is teaching and preaching, holding up the poor and locating Christ in the poor, as, as our Lord does himself, for example, in Matthew 25. Whatever that you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did unto me. So, you know, very interesting. In, in Chrysostom, we don't know the exact, you know, we, we haven't discussed the exact historical circumstances, but generally enough, we can see what he's saying. If you bring, if you bring the clergy, if you bring Christians, if you bring the poor, you have Christ there. If you bring uh, carousers, as he, as he refuse, uh, refers to here, mimes and effeminates, um, then you bring the devil and his fallen angels with him. And so, you know, a good thing to reflect on in terms of rite and ceremony, which is Chrysostom's narrow focus here. So bottom of page 83, no one in the city has done this, you say? Why don't you hurry to be the founder of this good custom so that posterity may attribute it to you? If anyone envies or imitates this custom, your descendants will be able to say to inquirers that you first introduced this practice. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> you were the first to invite the poor and have a godly celebration. 
In the competitions of the unbelievers at symposia, many people sing the praises of those who have improved these unedifying rites. All the more in the spiritual rite, everyone will give praise and thanks to the one who first introduces this wonderful innovation. This will bring both honor and benefit to him. When this is tended by others, it will bring the reward of its fruits to you who first planted it. This will make you quickly a father. This will help your children prosper. This will aid the bridegroom to grow old together with his bride. Just as God continually threatens the sinners, saying, Your children shall be orphans and your wives widows, so also he promises to those who are always obedient a pleasant old age together with every good gift. We can also hear Paul saying this, that a multitude of sins often causes untimely deaths. That is why he says, Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, reference to 1 Corinthians 11.30. From the story of the girl in Joppa, we can learn that the poor who have been fed do not allow anything like this to happen. If any misfortune occurs, they bring a quick restoration. When she was lying dead, the poor whom she had fed stood around weeping. They raised her up and restored her to life. Again, this is reference to uh, Acts chapter 9. So much more beneficial is the prayer of the widows and the poor than any amount of laughter and dancing. The latter gives pleasure for one day. The former brings lasting benefit. Think how good it is for a bride to enter the house of her bridegroom with such blessings on her head. Are not these more noble than any crowns? Are not they more useful than any wealth? whereas the present customs represent the greatest madness and insanity. So I think that that, uh, that last line from Chrysostom invites reflection. I don't really intend to do that here, but it invites reflection as we see the world around us. And I think this particularly resonates with us here at the beginning of the 21st century, as we see the world around us descending into madness and wickedness and a kind of spiritual insanity where evil is um, celebrated and good things, even just basic civic virtues, are decreed, despised, hated. We all the more than are being called uh, by our disgust at what we see around us um, to live in a way that is countercultural, to live in a way that is opposite of all of this, to try to teach our children and inculcate this in our spheres of influence so that, so that glory to Christ and to what is right and to what is good, to what is humble, to what is poor um, can be given rather than all the pomp and evil of wickedness, which, as Jesus says, rejoices today and weeps tomorrow, whereas we weep today and rejoice tomorrow. All right, that ends this section of Chrysostom's uh, sermon on marriage and, and this topic. Now he's going to shift gears um, briefly before closing out and, and then as you can see we've just got um, looks like uh, this rather lengthy section at least in terms of this this text how to choose a wife so a little bit on the the premarital angle um, pages 89 through 114 and that brings us to an end and just please do remember uh, if you're going to join us for the study of Wolf Mueller's book 
why has Christianity in America failed or has Christianity in America failed? I'm always getting that slightly wrong. Um, you'll want to pick that up for the weeks to come. Okay, before we move on to the next section, the last section of this sermon, any thoughts, any questions you have? Anything you want to add? Yes, sir. One thing I think that's especially tough in our time is, and I don't know if, if the case was true in their time, in, in his time, the government rewards or um, encourages this kind of stuff uh, through their policies. In other words, take public schools, for example. We all have to pay property taxes to fund these things that we don't like. Mm. And here we are, you know, paying the tax, yet we probably, you know, if we had our way, would, would have some sort of other education uh, system for, you know, for our kids. And it just, it's, it's, it wasn't such a struggle, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago because we were more in line culturally with the government, mm -hmm. and now we're not. Yeah, yeah, very good point. It's an uphill battle for us, um, and while it is, while it is, the unfamiliarity of it is has been dawning on us for some time in the church here in the West. Um, I think I think we can take great credit, just great stock. I mean, great comfort in realizing that uh, global Christianity and historic Christianity have very great, very rich, very deep experience in being located within cultures that are contrary to the tenets of the Christian faith. And in some respects, tend toward to have good, good evangelistic uh, success because of the, the, because the difference is so stark. You know, one of the, for, for all of its benefits, one of the lamentable differences in a, in a quote-unquote Christian society is everyone assumes they are a Christian, and you have the difficult task as, as Christians, as, as you know, pastors, pastoral office, trying to um, evangelize those who, are, who think they're already Christians, but aren't. And there, there I think you can see the, like, the place of someone like C.F.W. Walther and his sermons and, and his real bent on, you know, are you a real Christian? Do you have real faith? This kind of thing. In that context, it makes perfect sense. In our context, it looks like, why are you trying to overturn our faith? Why are you trying to convince us we're not actually Christian? So the context matters greatly there. Um, we have a context um, that's just so vastly different from Christianity. It's this beautiful thing because we can simply point out not only the, the internal differences, but the external differences between the Christian life and the, the worldly life. And I think Chrysostom's doing that to great, to great degree here. Yes, sir? I've been reflecting on Psalm 12, uh, the, the last few verses, um, that say, Do thou, O Lord, protect us, guard us ever from this generation, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the sons of men. That is quite fitting, isn't it? Quite fitting. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing about, that's the thing about um, that particular line in specific and, and the whole scriptural take on this in general. There is nothing new under the sun. And, and what we're experiencing always has been and really is the dominant mode and motif of this world. And it's why... 
you know, we, we have to be really careful that we haven't lured ourselves into becoming people comfortable in the world and thus we're just mourning and lamenting that we're no longer comfortable in the world, which we never should have been in the first place. I mean, no Christian wishes for more tension between the church and the surrounding culture, that's for sure. Um, but we need to remember that, that whether that was apparent or not apparent, it was probably already there. It's probably already there. I mean, Luther, Luther certainly laments that, and even in his local environs where everyone is ostensibly a Christian. Everyone is ostensibly baptized. Yet he's, I mean, ask the question and, and sort of read, read Luther's take, and, and he sees himself surrounded by forces contrary to the true Christian faith. And so if we see it, if we see it all the more in our day and age, um, we're probably seeing things accurately. Yes, sir? As, as we're in this environment, um, there's different ways in which we can express our resistance or our disagreement with it uh, passively, uh, semi-actively, actively. What, would you comment on, on what, or should we just let what we feel we're called to do? I mean, some people are demonstrating in the street. They're active on social media. Um, so if you could just comment on that. Yeah, I, Lutheranism has, has this very important biblical concept of the two kingdoms different, vastly different than a separation between church and state. So we don't want to get those two things confused. Um, but in the two kingdoms we recognize that while our true citizenship is in the right-hand kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ, we are also temporally in the left-hand kingdom. And that too in a, is ultimately a kingdom of God. God is ruling over that kingdom as well, and we can't, we can't forget that. Um, but these forces of darkness are at work there too, and we want to be active in both kingdoms. And so we want to recognize our citizenship on earth and then be active uh, according to our gifts and abilities. And I think people who are naturally um, given toward that sort of thing gravitate toward it, and you know, we want to we cheer them on, and we want to we vote in a God-pleasing way insofar as we can. We want to advocate for policies in a God-pleasing way as much as we can. We recognize the great harm that can be done when the, the left-hand kingdom is run by completely godless and rulers contrary to God just through and through. I mean, the, because, the, because the truth of the matter is even just from a historical perspective, a left-hand kingdom like that doesn't stand. It doesn't stand. There is a sense in which a left-hand kingdom merits its existence before God, and when it, when it ceases to do so, God punishes it and takes it away and replaces it with another. Right? Even the Old Testament itself shows us this, that he's God of the nations, and this is exactly what he does. And when the stench of, of a nation's immorality raises up to his nostrils to the point where he, you know, is sick of it, can't take it anymore, in comes another. And I think we see that, I see, I, we will, we certainly see that, objectively see that weakening of America. I think what's stunning to us is how fast it's all happening. You know? So to, to stand against that, um, there's kind of this paradoxical, to, to stand against it in the civil sphere as if, as if it, it was of ultimate concern while well knowing it isn't. Yeah, well knowing it isn't. But that's true to all our vocations, isn't it? It's true to our entire role, roles and callings in this life is we want to execute our duties as if they were the up, of the utmost importance while recognizing they're not. Yeah. 
now because the utmost importance is that kingdom which is to come. And nothing's going to be solved or settled until Christ comes, gets rid of the quote-unquote small g God of this world, ousts him and all his forces. And then, the, and then there will be no more left and right-hand kingdom distinction. Yeah, it will be um, theocracy in the pure and true sense. Okay, thank you for those reflections. Thank you for those reflections. So if we were to tie Chrysostom into that and what he's saying and, and maybe make a, a slightly more broad point, in the, in the way that we do things as Christians, we might think of how to stand out from culture and we might think, okay, well, here's the norm. Here's my assumption. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have this great big party. What might I do instead? Or how might I make that party Christian in nature? Um, of course, it extends to other rites and rituals. What about, uh, what about high school graduation? What are the rites and rituals that surround that? What are these rites of passage that we, uh, that we engage in and do? College graduation, this sort of thing. Um, how, what we might ask ourselves as Christians is, how do I celebrate this in, in an ostensibly Christian way? Yeah. Okay. So, back to Chrysostom, page 85, we shift gears here and talk a little bit more specific um, to marriage rather than uh, maybe so much emphasis on the, on the ceremony. Chrysostom continues, marriage was not instituted for wantonness or fornication, but for chastity. This harkens back to a point we made earlier, that the goal of the Christian life, whether one is... Um, is in marriage or outside of marriage is chastity. So outside of marriage, it takes on the form of celibacy, and inside of marriage, it takes on the form of uh, union only with the wife and sexuality only with the, with the spouse. So marriage was not instituted for wantonness or fornication, but for chastity. Listen to what's, what Paul says. Because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. These are the two purposes for which marriage was instituted, to make us chaste and to make us parents. Ooh, is that how marriage is viewed today? No, not really. Not really. It's not, it's not really viewed in the way of chastity, but it's especially and increasingly not viewed as the way of uh, becoming parents. That's seen as a separate question. So these are the two things. Now, obviously, what can we see as Christians here? And these two things that may be culturally unattractive, we can see God bestowing the greatest honor. That for those of us who have not been given the supernatural gift of celibacy, God gives us the gift of marriage and chastity within marriage, which apart from marriage, we would not be able to have. And so he gives us this gift of chastity, and then he gives us this high and holy honor of becoming parents, which if you recall the fourth commandment and that theology there, to be a parent is to be God's representative on earth. Remember, God is the Father, and so to be a parent is to be in his office. And so there is no higher dignity, again, in the sort of left-hand kingdom uh, gifts, the civil sphere gifts, the first article of the creed gifts, than to be a parent. All right, so marriage is to make us chase and make us parents. Of these two, the reason of chastity takes precedence. When desire began, then marriage also began. It sets a limit to desire by teaching us to keep one wife. 
Marriage does not always lead to childbearing, although there is the word of God which says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We have as witnesses all those who are married but childless. So the purpose of chastity takes precedence, especially now when the whole world is filled with our kind. Okay, so he's saying, he's, uh, he, I mean, even in his day and age when there's far less people, he's saying, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, well, we're doing that. <laughs> there's lots of people. Um, and that seems to be a minor argument. His major argument is because some marriages don't lead to parenthood, don't lead to children being born, uh, then the primary must be chastity. And I think he's exactly right, that marriage is um, a way, a, a means and mode by which God calls us into the image of Jesus. No. It's, a, it's a kind of crucifixion of the self for the sake of another. And it is a remedy to lust and a way to understand not only then an answer to lust, but a kind of answer to all of the sinful impulses within us, that God gives us these temporal means of mitigating them and of using them in ways that don't harm ourselves or others. So he sets limits and bounds to these, to these lusts and desires, be they sinful or not. It doesn't really matter in this instance. With the knowledge, with the knowledge that this is a temporal arrangement, and soon enough, all of these disordered things and all of these, this lusting and longing and the sinful things, the sinful things will be done away with. Those holy impulses will be fulfilled in Christ and the beatific vision of God when finally our souls rest being, being fulfilled in God himself. And so those things, in a sense, always lead us to God. Because they're, you know, I mean, I think, I think all of our desires are not are not fully fulfilled, and we're, that's part of the recognition. You know, no, no matter how wonderful your children are, um, there, there's something, or no matter how wonderful your parents are, no, no matter how wonderful your spouse is, there's always things that aren't. There's this unfulfilled desire, and that is intentional. It's to lead us to the fact that these things aren't gods that can fulfill us. Uh, only God himself can fulfill us. And so there's many and various ways in which God uses these vocations to lead us uh, to himself and to teach us to navigate this world, conforming us into the image of, of his own beloved son. All right, so in the middle of that paragraph on 85 is where we left off. At the beginning the procreation of children was desirable so that each person might have a memorial of his life. That concept is largely gone today, um, but that, that used to be huge, that if you don't have your own children, your own progeny to bear your name, bear your identity, bear who you are, um, then your, your line is cut off, and this was seen as a, as a curse. Um, and maybe to some extent that's still around today, although it seems to me to be to a much lesser degree. Since there was not yet any hope of resurrection, but death held sway, and those who died thought that they would perish after this life, God gave the comfort of children so as to leave living images of the departed and to preserve our species. For those who were about to die and for their relatives, the greatest consolation was their offspring. 
to understand that this was the chief reason for desiring children, listen to the complaint of Job's wife. See, she says, your memory has perished from the earth, your sons and your daughters. Reference to Job 18. Likewise, Saul says to David, Swear to me that you will not destroy my seed and my name along with me. Reference to 1 Kings 24. But now that resurrection is at our gates, and we do not speak of death, but advance toward another life better than the present, the desire for posterity is superfluous. This is an interesting argument, but this is, one of, this is a rationale that Chrysostom uses to say this desire, this idea of my line is cut off is utterly altered and changed by the gospel. Maybe if I were to do this, I would, I would make the argument that because family is radically redefined, as Jesus says, my brother and sister and mother are those who do the will of my father. And so we also then constitute ourselves this way. And I, I think of myself as, of course, in the way of the earth, God has blessed me with two children. But spiritually, we all have many children and many brothers and sisters and many fathers and mothers. And that's more how we think. So then this question of does my line go on, um, if, if talking about an earthly line, is really seen as rather small and rather foolish because of course our line is the our true line is the heavenly line and it goes on for all eternity. Yes. But did not Job and the Old Testament people know that also? Yes, I they did and that's that's a good that's a good point to bring out. While they did, while they did, while they certain I, of course Job is the perfect one to point out because he says uh, even when my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, I myself and not another. So Job clearly understands the resurrection and, and knows of the resurrection. Um, Chrysostom hints to the fact that their conception of death was a bit different than ours after the New Testament. I think there's some validity in considering that. Um, the way they saw death, even if they, even if, um, they like Job, like David, held to resurrection because Christ had not yet come, because Christ had not yet been raised from the dead, because these things were foreshadowing and hints and promises without, without a manifestation, like we have at Easter, uh, that, that their faith was uh, considerably, I, I hate to use the term darker, but dimmer than ours when it came to that. And so you find much more lament about the, about the earthly line being cut off. Um, so I think Chrysostom has some validity there in, in just how he said it, um, without suggesting that the, that the Old Testament saints knew nothing of the resurrection. Yeah. Okay, very bottom of page 85 is where we left off. If you desire children, you can get much better children now. <laughs> <laughs> a nobler childbirth and better help in your old age if you give birth by spiritual labor. You know, this is a great, this is a great calling. I, it's a difficult calling because of the way our society is set up right now. But it's a great calling for, um, occasionally I, I find um, older folks, their, parent, their, their children have grown up, and moved out. They find themselves a little bored, a little listless, not sure what to do. 
um, having sort of the, the wind taken out from their sails, this is the perfect time to um, recognize all the spiritual children you have in your congregation, for example, and to start to minister, serve, care for, serve as not even sur surrogate parents for, um, but true spiritual parents for, um, upholding, lifting up, encouraging, comforting. Uh, of course, St. Paul talks about these things explicitly um, in his pastorals, uh, that this is what, this is what <coughs> older men and women are to be doing. We use words like mentorship and this kind of thing, which I think puts it a little too formally. Like, how about just start with establish a relationship. Take, a, take, take young people out for a, for a lunch, get to know them, um, and invite them over and, and, uh, for a dinner and, and spend time with them. Um, Offer to babysit their kids once in a while, that kind of thing, you know, very, very helpful. And then, and then you establish a relationship, and then you can begin to, what we would say, mentor, um, what Christism would probably just say, parent, um, that is, to, to guide. So this is, um, again, Christism opening up, uh, up to our eyes something quite, quite a bit more rich than, than sort of our individualistic vision as Americans. Top of 86, first full paragraph there, he continues, So there remains only one reason for marriage, to avoid fornication. And the remedy is offered for this purpose. I find this delightful. I find this delightful because it's so earthy. And it's so like cut all the, all the other nonsense out. And not just the nonsense, but many other positive and beautiful and wonderful things that could be said about marriage. I, I love how earthy and pastoral this take, this take is um, that Chrysostom has. There remains only one reason for marriage to avoid fornication. If we, saw it, if we even just saw it as that, as a remedy for fornication, we would instantly see it in a much higher light than we're accustomed to seeing it. And, I don't know, there's this paradox in sweeping away all of the, the, the capital R romanticism and all this, you completely you complete me in soulmate and lifelong partnership and complementary and you know all this stuff that, that really ends up being the downfall of many marriages because people go into marriage with this false belief of this is what it's supposed to be like and they wake up two years, three years, seven years, 14 years down the line and they go, it, it's not this and it never was this and I'm sick of it and I deserve more. That's divorce. If you get rid of all of this and say, God put me in this so that I can cure the other person um, from committing fornication and that's why, that's why God has given them to me also and that's enough. I mean, look how earthy that is and look how realistic that is and just, just gritty combating sin and none of the other stuff matters. I think that this actually lays a foundation for a much happier relationship than a relationship that comes in with all of these capital R romantic expectations that can never possibly be met, which is basically just a great big legal structure by which you and your spouse are constantly crucifying each other. And even if you're not, even if you've learned to keep your mouth shut, in your heart you're always feeling this, oh, well, it should be different. What a cross I bear. What if we just strip ourselves of all of this and assume it's wrong since the Bible says nothing about it and rather focus on, on the Spartan, earthy, spiritual, like truly spiritual, not high-flying spiritual, like baby in a manger spiritual, 
body on a cross spiritual stuff of, of this earth and just say that, hey, marriage is for this purpose. Fulfill your duty. You're going to be a heck of a lot happier. You're going to expect a heck of a lot less of your spouse. And thus, they're going to fail your expectations a heck of a lot less. And you all are going to be much more merry in the long run. So I, I, I hate to belabor the point, but I find a particular kind of pastoral genius in this very line that is probably so deeply offensive to many Christians. Um, I'll go with Chrysostom on this one. There remains only one reason for marriage to avoid fornication, and the remedy is offered for this purpose. He continues, if you are going to practice fornication after marriage, you have approached marriage uselessly and in vain. Boy, I wonder that too, in our society where open marriage and polyamorous relationships and and then people who it's just kind of this unspoken norm that, well, you're going to get married, but then you're each going to like, you know, fornicate on the side. Why bother getting married? Is the tax break that good? <laughs> I mean, because society tells you you have to? I mean, it's the strangest thing. And even Chrysostom in his own age, so separated from ours, um, you know, again, just points this out that, Look, if you're not going to use it as a remedy for fornication, then you, like, then you have no point in using it. That's what it's there for. So, um, his point again, if you are going to practice fornication after marriage, you have approached marriage uselessly and in vain, or rather, not merely in vain, but to your harm. It is not as serious for an unmarried man to practice fornic- fornication as to do the same after marriage. Why? Because of the destruction, because of the destruction to the, to the spouse and then to the, to the rest of the family and uh, potential for children and everything else. I mean, the act themselves are the same, but the effect isn't. He continues, for then the same act is no longer fornication, but adultery. If, uh, even if this statement seems strange, it is true. I realize that many people think it is adultery only when one corrupts a married woman. But I say that if a married man treats wickedly and wantonly an unmarried woman, even a prostitute or a servant girl, this act is adultery. I think we would say, of course it is. The charge of adultery is determined not only by the status of the person wronged, but also by that of the wrongdoer. Do not tell me about the laws of the unbelievers which drag the woman caught in adultery into court and exact a penalty, but do not demand a penalty from the married men who have corrupted servant girls. I will read to you the law of God which is equally severe with the woman and the man, and which calls the deed adultery. When Paul says, let each woman have her own husband, he adds, let the husband show his wife the goodwill which is due, 1 Corinthians 7. What does he mean when he says this? Is it to preserve her access to her money? Is it to keep her dowry intact? Is it to provide her with expensive clothes or an extravagant table or a conspicuous display when she goes out? Is it to have her attended by many servants? What do you say? What kind of goodwill do you seek? All of these things show goodwill, do they not? I do not mean any of these, Paul says, but chastity and holiness. The husband's body is no longer the husband's, but the wife's. 
Therefore, he must keep her property intact without diminishing it or damaging it. Again, I just love this because it's so offensive to our sensibilities. I'm not anyone's property. <laughs> I mean, male and female feel this way. Chrysostom would beg to differ, and I think he's exactly right. The scriptures would beg to differ. Um, you become the property of your spouse. That's what marriage is. Uh, you belong to another. Uh, in the same way that, you know, and, and along the same contours as, as the church belongs to Christ and Christ to the church because he's promised and pledged herself, himself to her. So we ought to see one another, you know, man ought to see himself as his wife's property and um, wife as man's property, and you don't damage the property of another. Yeah. So, so if, you, if you fornicate in marriage, you've damaged the property of another. You've damaged yourself. Um, likewise, if you withhold uh, in marriage, contrary to the will of your spouse, you've damaged that property. So those are the, those are the two ways in which violence is done to marriage. You know, um, Withholding, as Paul says, or uh, fornicating which is sexuality outside the, the bounds of marriage. Okay, so an interesting way to look at it. Again, refreshing, because it's much more, well, it is in line with the scriptures, and it is uh, much less in the line of romanticism. Chrysostom continues, top of 87, we say that, uh, we say that that servant has goodwill who takes charge of his master's property and does not damage any of it. Since, therefore, the husband's body is the wife's property, the husband must show goodwill in regard to the property entrusted to him. When Paul says, let him show the goodwill which is due, he adds, the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. And this is a reference again to 1 Corinthians 7. So when you see a prostitute setting snares, plotting against you, desiring your body, say to her, this body is not mine. It belongs to my wife. I do not dare to mistreat it nor to lend it to another woman. The wife should do the same. Here there is complete equality. I grant that in other matters, Paul gives the husband superior authority when he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a reference to Ephesians 5. He also says, the husband is the head of the wife and the wife ought to be subject to her husband. Again, reference to Ephesians 5. In the Old Testament, it is written, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Um, this is uh, Genesis 3.16. How then in this passage has Paul introduced an equal exchange of service and mastery in saying the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. He introduces a great measure of equality. Just as the husband is master of her body, so the wife is mistress of his body. Why does Paul introduce so much equality? Although in other matters there needs to be a superior authority, here with chastity and holiness are at stake. The husband has no greater privilege than the wife. Beautifully stated. 
beautifully stated. There are aspects of marriage that are totally equal, and then there are other aspects of marriage that are equal but ordered. And that ordering is, for example, you know, headship and submission, that kind of thing. Um, but those are, those are partic uh, particular instances in terms of uh, chastity. It's completely equal footing. This is great exegesis, and I think a great, a great treatment of these two biblical concepts. Chrysostom continues, He is punished equally with her if he breaks the laws of marriage, and with good reason. Your wife did not come to you, leaving her father and mother and her whole household, so that you could dishonor her, so that you could take a cheap servant girl in her place. It was not in order to start a thousand battles that you took a companion, a partner for your life, a free woman of equal honor with yourself. Would it not be foolish to receive her dowry, treat it with all goodwill, and diminish nothing of it, but to corrupt and ruin that which is more valuable than the whole dowry, namely chastity and holiness, as well as your own body, which is her possession? If you diminish her dowry, you give cause for a lawsuit to your father-in-law. If you diminish chastity, you will pay the penalty to God who instituted marriage and protects the wife. To know that this is true, hear what Paul says about adulterers. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Reference to 1 Thessalonians 4. Do you see how definitely his words prove that it is adultery to corrupt not only a married woman, but even a prostitute, if the man is married? Just as we say that a married woman is made an adulteress, whether she sins with a servant or any other man, so we should say that a married man commits adultery if he sins with a servant girl or any loose woman. So, Again, I don't know the exact historical circumstances in which Chrysostom is speaking, but it seems to be the case that societally, if a man um, committed adultery, it was a lesser sin, if a sin at all, um, whereas uh, for the female it was obviously a sin. So he's correcting this. Yeah, he's correcting this. And he's saying, look, it's completely equal in this instance that either, either party that is cheating, fornicating, um, is, is guilty of adultery, and equally so. He continues, therefore, do not neglect your own salvation. Do not offer your soul to the devil by this kind of sin. By such sins, many families are broken, many battles are started. Such sins empty out love and undermine goodwill. Just as a virtuous man can never neglect or scorn his wife, so a wanton and licentious man can never love his wife, no matter how beautiful she is. Virtue gives birth to love, and love brings insurmountable blessings. And then parenthetically, the editors put in, St. John continues to exhort the husband to fidelity. Okay, and that brings to a conclusion this homily. Again, again from our perspective, um, what about those who have committed adultery? What about those who have fornicated um, before or inside of marriage? Is there forgiveness? Is there healing? And of course that answer is given wholeheartedly with a, with a yes. The blood of Christ, the blood of the Son of God, cleanses us from all iniquities, even those that are most grievous and most hurtful, even those that cause lasting, lasting wounds and scars. Um, 
He cleanses those and he heals us from our guilt. And I think, I think that there is something very, very important that I wish Chrysostom would touch on a little more in his homilies, and that is, that is the healing role of the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. Part of the reason, part of the reason why he gives his true body and his true blood is because the sins we commit, and Paul makes a point that particularly the sexual sins we commit are done in the body and against the body. Christ wants to make sure that we have a very physical remedy for the very physical harm that is done to our bodies. And so in giving us his body into our bodies, he cleanses and heals our bodies. In giving his blood to be one with our blood, he cleanses and, and heals that which is that life which is within us. And so there is an all-encompassing, all-embracing, you know, from, from skin to soul, from head to foot, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins, and he's not ashamed to join himself intimately with us, casting out all unholiness. So there's full and complete remedy in Christ, and that is so important to remember. Um, when we, you know, when it's, when Chrysostom's homilies are too late, and you can see that, um, you can see that his point is very much proactive, very much to young people, very much to married couples who haven't engaged in fornication. This hard line is for their sake, and it's very good. We ought to preach and teach like this all the time um, for the sake of those who haven't yet fallen. And then um, in the case of those who have fallen, we need to make sure and, and show that, hey, if you repent and desire to do better, there's full and complete forgiveness. Not only full and complete forgiveness, but a kind of ontological and organic healing that takes place in the sacrament. Okay, that, um, that takes us then on to the next, which is how to choose a wife. Before we move on, any thoughts or comments you have on the points that Chrysostom here makes? One second, we'll get you the... Uh... Oh, thanks, Liz. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to me, spend a lot of time... Uh, talking about the negative aspects of sin and, and fornication. And up until the very end when he talked briefly about the positive bonding, and he, I'd have to read it again to get the quote, but uh, I think that we can't ignore that that positive bonding that happens in a marriage really helps uh, prevents this fornication and yeah. stuff and it's really important to have a, a positive bonding with the uh, wife or husband I think absolutely and it's free I mean it's easy to do <laughs> uh, yes absolutely that's very well said Bob that yeah the the entire thing is you know particularly when we view Marriage, which in and of itself is what we would call a first article, and we mean first article of the creed, a kind of gift of creation, or a left-hand kingdom gift. I mean, God doesn't give marriage just to Christians. But when we view this gift, this left-hand kingdom, first article gift, in light of Christ, in light of Christianity, it takes on all different shades and dimensions. And, and one of those is, is to realize that it... Um, that our conduct within marriage unto our spouse has great effect on our, on our spouse's spiritual well-being. And, then, um, and thus is, is quite prophylactic in terms of uh, 
their desire or willingness to go down that path which leads to um, adultery or something like that. Yeah, I, you know, one doesn't just slip, one isn't walking down the street and slips and falls and commits fornication. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Um, there are always steps. There are always steps. And even if, the, even if that slope is rather steep and rather slippery, you can nonetheless say there were steps. You know, you shouldn't have been there at that time, at that place, having that many drinks, right? And um, all, of, all of that can be precluded by a very healthy, loving relationship. And, and to one degree or another, you know, a, a wife or a husband in, in pouring themselves under, out onto another um, can greatly mitigate against the risk of that and the potential for that. Now, is that always the case? No. No. It's not always the case. It's sometimes the case that a spouse is just rotten and just returns uh, good for evil. And that, the, and that, humanly speaking, there was nothing that the wife could have done more, nothing that the husband could have done more, and the fornication still took place, the adultery still took place. So we don't want to kick the victim here at all. But we do want to say, on the other hand, we don't want to say that one's conduct doesn't matter at all, that you can treat your spouse like absolute trash, and then, hey, if they commit fornication or adultery, it's their fault entirely. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah. So your point's very well taken. Yes. Oh, microphone, one second. <coughs> Excuse me. How to remedy this? Because it is, it is blatant in our society to be cavalier about the care for um, family members, spouse to spouse. As a, as a former educator, I am wanting to work around, and I would love to have further conversation on this. Think of, of, the, of Luther's small catechism. The val I, I know I hammer this, but it is of great value to society to have had the, the um, elaborate presentation of God's call to us to be obedient to him. Um, I am I'm thinking that there is a uh, a letting go I'm I'm working with Bob's idea the positive side of of uh, obedience to God's call has such positive remedies for all of this and it it just seems to me that we have dropped the ball um in in so many ways uh by, by letting, letting the, it, and I, I love the word cavalier, the openness to do whatever you want. You know, from the child who's demand, demanding a, another, another piece of candy. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it is a call to us parents, grandparents, to have nurturing in the, in the right, um, path that serves the family but it and it serves the well-being of the individual you are you're simply healthier mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. are in all ways you could you could elaborate on that yeah um in all ways that will nurture your your life your 
future family's mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with uh, de Tocqueville, who was mentioned on Jeopardy last night. Remember the one who came from France to say, to study what America's <laughs> yeah. worthiness was? Right. I just, I th his, his idea is fascinating. He said that we, we had an exceptionalism, and, and I believe at that time there was the honoring of God's law uh, when he came here to see it. And, and the worship, he mentioned the, the worship of, of American Christians, yeah. which, which uh, nurtured at, you know, decades ago. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that, you know, if I, if I could view it with a little bit of mirror, a mirror toward our Lutheran theology and the, ex, the excesses that have actually become a non-Lutheran theology, but still kind of ironically go under the name of Lutheran. This is, this is one of the things that I think we've, we've done wrong. And I know I myself have been guilty of this. I'm trying to remedy it. We, what we do is we, we say something like this, like, well, a person's morals are never going to be fixed this side of heaven. Society is never going to be fixed this side of heaven. So the only answer is Christ Jesus. The only answer is the gospel in this ultimate kind of sense of, you know, we just need to believe we're forgiven, hang in there, and then, and then die and then finally be fixed. But what is, that, what is that kind of theology analogous to? It's analogous to someone saying, well, physically speaking, you're just going to get worse and worse and worse and die. Right? So let's not do any care. Let's not do any quality of life. Let's not do anything that's, gonna, that's going to make you more healthy and thus uh, more beneficial to the people around you. Just, you know, you want to know, just eat, drink, and be merry. Um, don't, don't exercise, eat McDonald's every day, smoke a pack of cigarettes, do whatever you want to do because, hey, tomorrow we die and then God will resurrect you and this will all be fixed. But this, is, this isn't what we do. This isn't what we do with the body. We say, I know the body is going to die. I know that ultimately there's no health in me that's going to last and yet I'm going to be a good steward of that and I'm going to live and, and eat and exercise and be as healthy as I possibly can be, right? So we recognize that there's this ultimate, and yet there's this penultimate. We ought to do the same thing theologically. And I think the fact that we don't really betrays itself. Um, and theologically, it looks like this. I know, that there's, I know that my good works aren't gonna save myself. I know that I'm going to die, and I need the, resur and I need the resurrection in order, in order to be fully healed. And yet, what am I going to do in this period of time? I'm going to mitigate that unhealthiness of sin to whatever extent I can. Um, I haven't been given the supernatural gift of celibacy, so I'm going to seek marriage. I'm going to seek chastity within marriage. I'm going to seek to raise my children in a godly way. I'm going to seek to be as moral as I possibly can to, to live in such a way that I'm, I'm representing God as his child in the best way that I can. Wherever I fail, I'm going to repent. I'm going to be forgiven. I'm going to confess that even if I make these superficial improvements, no, that's not an improvement that's going to keep me from death. I still need the ultimate forgiveness of Christ and the ultimate cure of the resurrection. But what am I going to do in the meantime? Right? And that's, I think that that's where Chrysostom is just so fresh and so unabashed. And the more I read Jesus, the more I read Paul, the more I read John, all of the apostles, frankly, the more I see this very thing. They're, not, they're, they're wanting us to conform ourselves into the image of God, into the, into the law of God, and into his works and his ways, not because we're saved by this, and not because we can achieve it even anywhere near perfection, 
but precisely for the same reason we Americans try to take care of our bodies. It's better for us and it's better for everyone around us. Um, so too, life is better for us and better for everyone around us insofar as we're willing to conform ourselves to the law of God. Does that save? No. But is it, is it therefore worthless? No. And that, that's the great error I think we've made in the past mm -hmm. 70 or so years of quote-unquote Lutheran theology. Because what I'm really talking about isn't properly Lutheran theology at all. It's an aberration. Lutheran theology, as you point out in the catechisms, is very robust in terms of how, how to live daily life. One more point. I'm reading a book on Noah Webster, who created the public school mm -hmm. when the founding fathers were um, among Americans. They had, as their curriculum, the, the learning of the alphabet by, by studying and memorizing um, Bible passages that started with A. Then you had a Bible passage that started with mm. B. This is, this is my point, that you, when you have the Word of God um, daily presented, as it was at one time, is my point, mm -hmm. in the public mm -hmm. schools, and we don't have it anymore. It is ruled out. Mm -hmm. um, you, have, you have a deadening of the Spirit's response to God. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It always reminds me in Narnia where the animals aren't allowed to say the name Aslan. <laughs> All right, next week, next week, we will get into this final section of Chrysostom's text, a little on the premarital side of things, how to choose a wife. I assume there will be uh, applications for how to choose a husband. Um, I, I suspect that we will get through this in a week or two. Uh, no, not a week, two weeks. That's my goal. And, um, and then we'll be on, we'll be on to Wolfmuller's text. All right, the Lord be with you.